0: Good morning. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15 this morning. Acts chapter 6. Last week we talked about how Ananias and Sapphira lied to Peter and to the Holy Spirit, apparently trying to buy prestige or influence in the church. They both fell down dead. News of this spread rapidly as did Peter's healing of a man who had been unable to walk for 40 years. Soon large crowds were bringing people to the temple to be healed, and the apostles healed them, and they preached to them about Jesus. This came to the attention of the Sanhedrin, who commanded them to stop talking about Jesus. The apostles were arrested and thrown into jail again. This time an angel of the Lord released them and told them to continue preaching Jesus. In direct violation of government orders, the apostles were arrested again and told the rulers, we must obey God rather than man. They were severely beaten and released. And the number of believers continued to grow. Unfortunately, increased growth sometimes brings increased problems, and not even the early church could avoid the problems. Let's read about it starting in verses 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Lord, focus our hearts on your word this morning. Help us to learn from the examples of these early believers and apply that to our lives today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first recorded problem in the earliest church was when Ananias and Sapphira lied to Peter and to the Holy Spirit. The second recorded problem seems to have been either an oversight or outright discrimination. We learned in chapter 5 that some believers, including Barnabas, sold property in order to help other believers in need. The church used that money to provide for food for church widows who were in need. Now, as you know, back then there was no, no retirement, no social security, or any other kind of government aid. And there weren't many jobs for women, if any at all. So most widows would have been cared for by family members. But widows who didn't have surviving family members, or widows who had immigrated with their husbands from foreign provinces, may not have had anyone to care for them. They may have been forced to beg or face near starvation. It became part of the church ministry from the very beginning to ensure that their needs were met. Now, back in those days, there was something of a culture war going on in Judea and Galilee. When Alexander the Great conquered the area in the 300s BC, he had a deliberate program of spreading Greek or Hellenistic culture. Greece was known as Hellas back then, so Hellenistic is about Greek language and culture, and Hellenists were those who adopted that culture to varying degrees. These Hellenists would often use Greek names, and some may have taken part in Greek athletic events and attended Greek plays, and read Greek literature. Some Hellenist Jews even went so far as to worship the gods of Greece and tried to surgically hide the fact that they had been circumcised. Hebraic Jews, on the other hand, rejected Hellenistic or Greek culture. They gave their children traditional Hebrew names. They pointed out that Greek athletic games were immodest, being conducted in the nude, and that Greek plays were sometimes obscene or outright pornographic. Their law was the law of Moses, and many would choose to die rather than to eat pork or worship foreign gods. That's the broader context. In the context of Acts 6, however, all of the earliest Christians were Jews. So when Acts 6 speaks of Hellenistic Jews, it is talking about Christians who are also ethnically Jewish. But had adopted the non sinful aspects of Greek culture. For example, although these Christians were Jewish, Greek was their primary language, and they had Greek names like Paul instead of Saul. They may have read Greek literature and attended Greek plays that were acceptable and not obscene. When Acts 6 speaks of Hebraic Jews, it is also referring to Christians, but to Christians who were not only ethnically Jewish, but Strongly Jewish in culture. In fact, they rejected Hellenistic culture and often looked down on those who were Hellenists. So, just to be clear, Acts 6 is talking about a divide between Jewish Christians. Some followed Greek culture and some followed Jewish culture. The problem was that the Hebraic Christian Jews who were distributing the food stopped bringing food to the Hellenistic Christian widows. Now, some scholars think the Hebraic Christians were deliberately discriminating against the Hellenistic widows, while others think the Hellenistic widows were just being unintentionally overlooked. And frankly, we don't know the details of what happened. My guess is this. As soon as Peter preached on Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved, the job of food distribution to widows was too big for the apostles to handle personally from the very beginning. So when people brought money to the apostles, I doubt the the apostles were ever personally involved in the food distribution. There were probably volunteers who actually purchased and distributed the food. Whether unintentionally or not, these volunteers began neglecting Hellenistic widows. And the Hellenistic Christians complained to the apostles. Now, this ministry to widows was an important ministry. And the apostles recognized that this was an important ministry. On the other hand, if they became personally involved, it would take away from the time they needed for prayer and for preaching and teaching the word of God. And as important a ministry as taking care of widows was, the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles and teachings and resurrection. They needed to be free to preach and teach about Jesus and to ensure that what was being taught about Jesus in the churches continued to be accurate. As important as the widow ministry was, it could not be allowed to derail the apostles' central mission of prayer, preaching, and teaching. So in verse 3, the apostles told the believers to choose seven men from among them who were full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, to be full of the Spirit in this context means... They are to be men whose lives show evidence of having been transformed by the Holy Spirit, being honest and reputable men of integrity. So in verses 5 and 6, the church chose seven men who were to personally oversee this ministry. Now, back in verse 1, the NIV refers to the daily distribution of this food. In Greek the word is di- for the word for daily distribution is diakonia from which we get our word deacon Now Luke doesn't call these seven men deacons but this is where we first get the idea of deacons in the New Testament Anyway all of the men listed in verse 5 have Greek names which may imply that the church chose Hellenist Christians to ensure there was no discrimination going on Their names are all we know about five of these guys. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. We will read more about Philip in chapter 8, and Stephen is the subject of the rest of this chapter and all of chapter 7. The church chose these men, and the apostles laid hands on them and prayed for them, ordaining them, so to speak, for the ministry to which they had been appointed. In fact, this is one of the passages where we get the idea of ordination. Now, in verses 8 through 15, Luke will focus specifically on Stephen as a kind of introduction to what we will see next week in chapter 7. Let's read about Stephen, starting in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the Synagogue of the Freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Kilikia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up to the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So Stephen was not just involved in overseeing the volunteers who distributed food to the widows. He was involved in other ministries as well. Verse 8 describes him as a man full of God's grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. When a ministry is as successful as Philip's, or as Stephen's apparently was, it often raises opposition. Opposition to Stephen came from something called the synagogue of the freedmen. In this case, the word freedmen indicates that they had been former Roman slaves. They were originally foreign Jews from places we would call Libya, Egypt, and Turkey. They actually had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. In fact, archeologists think they may have discovered the location of this exact synagogue. Anyway, people from this synagogue started arguing with Stephen. Now I can't help wondering if maybe Stephen had been part of this synagogue before he got saved. And if so, he, he started sharing Jesus with them and that apparently didn't go well they started arguing and debating with him. Now, some modern Christians say we we shouldn't argue or debate with people or that we shouldn't try to defend the faith. But Stephen was arguing and debating and defending the faith. And he was apparently pretty good at it. So good, in fact, that his opponents couldn't win. So they resorted to more underhanded and dishonest measures. Verses 11 through 15. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. So when Stephen's opponents can't win the debates with him, they start deliberately deceiving the people by twisting his words and taking them out of context. They stir up the people against him. Again, in verse 11, they say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Verse 13 says, they produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Their accusations almost sound like Stephen is cursing Moses and God. We will find out next week that their accusations were not true. But this was not their only attack. In verse 14, they say, for we have heard him say this, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. This place is, of course, the temple. And Jesus did predict that the temple would one day be destroyed, but he never said he would do it. They were twisting Stephen's and Jesus's words. Now, Sheila and I used to live in Delaware, only about an hour from Washington, D.C., and we once toured the White House. Before our group went in, we were strongly warned that if any of the guides or guards heard us make any threats against the White House or president, we would immediately be pulled out of the group and have a meeting with the Secret Service. They took all threats very seriously. In our day, if a member of Antifa began making public threats against the White House or Capitol and wants to tear up the Constitution, most of us take that very seriously. Similarly, Stephen's enemies are trying to make it sound like he is a threat to the Temple and the Law of Moses, which was like their Constitution. They would take that very seriously. Anyway, verse 15 says that all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, the Bible never tells us what an angel's face looks like. But next week, Stephen will talk about how the law of Moses was given by God through angels. So if the law of Moses was given through angels, and Luke says Stephen's face was like that of an angel... I wonder if if Luke is implying that the message Stephen is preaching is just as much a message from God as the law of Moses was. Anyway, we'll discuss Stephen's message and defense next week. Now, let me just close with three observations. The first has to do with the church's care of widows. This is something that started in the very earliest history of the church and continued to be practiced for a long time afterwards. 30 years later, both Paul and James would write about caring for widows. In fact, this ministry continued long after New Testament times. Now, our culture has changed a lot since the first century. They didn't have retirement programs, life insurance, savings accounts, welfare, or social security. And widows back then couldn't find work like they can today. But I think there is a principle that's still valid. And that is that, in my opinion... Caring financially for people in need in our church family, especially church members who are in need, should be part of the regular budgeted mission of the church, just like the Sunday school or missions program. It was certainly part of the ministry of the early church. My second observation is that this passage is another warning to beware of those who would deliberately seek to undermine or destroy the ministry of the church by deliberately stirring up people with half-truths or whole lies. When Stephen Enemies couldn't undermine him in reasoned debate, they began a campaign of twisting the truth and lies to destroy him. Unfortunately, that happens in churches too. Folks, if you ever have a problem with me as your pastor, the biblical model is to come to me directly. But if you can't bring yourself to do that, at least go to one of the deacons and ask them to intervene. Don't just let it fester and spread. If there are problems in the church, sometimes pastors are the last to know because no one will tell them. Now, one of the benefits of preaching through a book of the Bible from beginning to end, rather than preaching on topics every week, is that topical sermons can sometimes be reactionary. In other words, a problem comes up and the pastor preaches against that problem which means he may be preaching against specific people. When you preach the book of the Bible from beginning to end, you just preach what the text says, regardless of whether it addresses a current problem or not. And my point is that I'm not preaching against any problem in our church right now. I'm not aware of anyone in our church who is trying to stir up trouble or undermine the ministry here. So I'm not reacting to anything. I only bring this up because I think it's a valid application of the text. But even if the Bible doesn't always seem to apply to us right now, the Holy Spirit has a way of bringing things back to our remembrance if at any time in the future some problem like this should arise. My final observation has to do with the priority of prayer and the Word of God. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles, teaching, and resurrection. And as important as caring for widows was, And it was very important. The apostles' responsibility of prayer, preaching, and teaching was their primary responsibility. Now, pastors are not apostles, of course. So I don't think this directly applies to pastors. But I think it is still good principle to have pastors who can give priority to preaching, teaching, and prayer. The church, of course, has other important ministries, and that's where deacons and others in the church come in. I've heard of churches where the pastor was expected to do everything in the church, from cleaning to mowing, shoveling, snow, maintenance, music, you name it. Randolph Baptist Church is not like that. You have a more biblical model. We have people here who take care of finances, music, maintenance, family ministries, bulletins, all kinds of other things, which allows me to focus more on prayer, preaching. And teaching the word of God. Now, I hope you can tell by my quarterly reports that this is not all I do. But your ministry allows me to make preaching, teaching, and prayer my top priority. And I think that's the biblical model. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.12 that one of the pastor's jobs is to equip, to equip the saints. That's you. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the people in this church, especially for those who assist in the ministry of the church, those who lead music, who play instruments, who keep track of church finances, who keep the church maintained, who do the bulletins, who coordinate family ministries, who teach or help in the children's ministries, those who give faithfully to support this ministry. Thank you for those who are encouragers, those who show hospitality. Those who are ambassadors for you in word and example among family, co-workers, and friends. And those who are our prayer warriors. Lord, I thank you for their ministry. And I ask that you would richly bless them. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.